All right. Um, chapter 19. There was a bunch of stuff in Chapter 19, so I think that's all we're going to get to today. Might get a little bit into Chapter 20. This is the time in his life when he is working on finalizing the plans for the orphanage. And so he says, the season is approaching when the building may begin. He says, I, think that, I believe the time is drawing near. I rose from my knees this morning in full confidence, not only that God could, but also would send the money soon. The next paragraph was the thing that struck me. He said, I've waited 447 days upon God for the amount that we needed. And then a little bit later, from this particular time period, I've received solely, in answer to prayer, 9,285 pounds. I think his, his estimate of what he was going to need was about 10,000. And so here's my question. How was God using the delay and the generous gifts of many to grow Mueller's faith? So how would God use the delay of something like this to grow faith? Okay, learning to trust, yeah. I mean, it's one thing to have an answer to prayer the next day or in a few weeks, but more than a year is a long time to wait, especially for something that... Um, these are things that have been on his heart for quite a while in his life. The building of the specific building is a newer thing, but the idea of doing the orphanages, this is something he's been doing for a number of years now. So... What else? Other other things that God might have been using? Patience, okay. Yeah, trust, patience. What else? How about the part where people are giving? How is that used? Sure. And it might be possible that someone says, oh, this is going to be taken care of quickly, so I don't need to give. And as time stretches on, maybe he, they feel like we need to support and give to this. The sheet's on the back table there. Um, what else? What else does it do for someone who is watching something like this as far as whether they participate or not or their attitude toward everything? Yes, Mary. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because sometimes we say, oh, this has to be the thing because it's the first one we've come across, right? And then the opportunity to say, well, maybe God's going to provide something different and I struggle a little bit when people say, oh, well, I lost my job. God's going to provide a better one. He might not. It might, you might get paid less money. You might have less benefits, whatever else. But the reality is that God will provide, right, Bob? But in that regard, I think... How do we define say, better? Yeah, yes, exactly. absolutely. Right. Better is for our betterment and our relationship to Him. And I think we can always say that. Right. 
I'm just saying the way that people usually use the idea of better. Right, yeah. So, yeah, if we trust God's sovereign hand, that he's a good father, then whatever he brings into our lives is for our good, whether or not from a temporal or human perspective, it is what we would pick, right? Um, but, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think about the fact there was a... Um, well, I won't go into that because I don't know. I don't remember all the, the details of it. So there was something with a missionary and concrete factory moved in next door, but I forget how everything turned out, so it's not a helpful illustration here. So I put how might he do something similar today, and the he, I was reading it, and I was confused because I was thinking it was Mueller, but the he is supposed to be God. So how might he, God, do something similar today? How might we, how might we experience something similar today? Any thoughts on that part of it? Yes. Think about Mike Jewell. Okay. And that church that they're building. Yeah. Not exact similarities, but yeah. Praying about it, and they've had people giving money. They've had people giving time. People giving resources. Yeah. And you know, he, I think the last email he said uh, somebody said that they would match up to thirty or fifteen thousand. So he reported that he's almost at five thousand. So. Yeah. They almost have enough to start building the roof, um, which is what I didn't even think about. It's only half of the work. Right. They still have to do everything on the inside. Right. Here's the interesting thing, though, about Mike Jewell and the work that they're doing in Brazil. Mike is one of those guys who, who says, you know, I might be approaching retirement age, but here's this project we're going to go do, right? And uh, I really appreciate that about him because... I think there's a lot of people that say, you know, I'm getting into my 60s, I need to be winding down, um, let's not start anything big because we don't know where it's going to end up, like all those sorts of ideas. But I think, and again, I'm not saying the rest of our missionaries are bad, but I think of all of our missionaries, I think I have seen most clearly with Mike this sort of attitude of, we're just going to go start this thing. Cuthbertson's too, to a certain extent, but I don't hear from them as often, so it doesn't come to mind as quickly. So. Um, but just this attitude of, you know, here's a village that needs the gospel. Let's, let's just move there and, and do something, and we'll figure out the details as we go along, right? And there's a degree to which people would say, well, that's a terrible idea. Here's all the things that could go wrong. But the reality is, if you know it's something that God clearly wants you to do, and I think it's pretty clear that God wants people to know the gospel, a lot of the things that are the details that we're worried about are things that, like we were talking about a moment ago, are connected with our comfort or our security, and so there is a time and a place for being willing to say we can wait for those parts of things to work out as long as we're doing the work that God wants us to do. And so even with that, there's been stretches where, I'm trying to think how long he's been in that village, year and a half maybe, something like that, where there was difficulties with all the COVID stuff and everything else, and God continued to have to provide. They were trying to figure out how do we get these workers who don't have vehicles over to the other guy's house so we can meet. So they bought this bus, and uh, just just a whole bunch of things, just obstacles kept coming up, and, and those things test and try our faith, but they're good for us. And the opportunity of people to give generously enables a sense of participation in the work and also a recognition that... Um, I was talking with Dwight at lunch on Wednesday, Pastor Schultz over at First of Sterling Heights, and... He said he walked into work earlier in the week and he saw a weed growing up through the sidewalk. He's like, man, somebody should really deal with that. 
And then the next day it dawned on him, I'm the somebody that should do that. <laughs> Sometimes that's the way that we approach some of these kinds of projects. They're like, somebody really needs to give something to help make this thing happen. Well, you know, so. And I think the other thing too is the generous gift doesn't have to do with the size or the amount of it. So if there's a project that's $15,000 and all you can give is 50 bucks, that might be generous given your current circumstances. And there's nothing wrong with that. And so it's the collective effect of God's people giving that accomplishes some of these things. Yeah. It seems too that the waiting and the difficulties and the uncertainties, that forces us to realize that we can't rely on our own ingenuity and resources. It forces us to rely on God. And that ultimately is the only Real, real security in this universe mm -hmm. is that rest in Him. And so the more difficulties that come into our lives that force us there, that's better for us once we realize that. Yeah, and uh, trying to find the thing that he was saying earlier. I think it was two chapters ago. Sorry, it's taking a second to find it here. Well, I can't find the exact quote, but the basic idea is what you were just talking about, that faith is strengthened most effectively when all the other supports get kicked out from under what we're trying to do. And so um, as long as there remains a hope of us solving the problem in our own, uh, in our own wisdom and so forth, then we become convinced that, yeah, I got this, and I don't, maybe I don't need God, right? But when there's no way for it to happen apart from God working, then we're reminded that we do really need Him. So, Oh, I should have just looked at the next quote on the page. <laughs> I thought it was in a different chapter. I knew it was familiar. All right, that's funny. When sight ceases, it is the time for faith to work. The greater the difficulties, the easier it is for faith. We think that that's strange because we think it's the other way around, right? But I need to let you answer the question, so I'm not going to comment too much. Let me finish reading this. As long as human possibilities for success remain, faith does not accomplish things as easily as when all natural prospects fail. During the time of poverty, our expenses were considerably greater than usual. Many people who otherwise might have supported us were unable to do so or had their surplus directed into other channels. But the gold and silver are the Lord's. To Him we made our prayer, and in Him we put our trust, he did not forsake us. We went as easily through that winter as through any other. God used this time as a special opportunity of showing the blessedness of trusting in Him. So what are some lessons we can learn from Mueller's comments here? 
Okay? Being faithful in prayer, waiting on God. Okay? Yes, Evan. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, think about the story of Gideon, for example, when he has, I forget the number he started with, let's say 3,000 troops. It's, uh, it's improbable that he's going to win, but it's possible, right? He goes down to 300 guys, and there's no way it's going to happen unless God does it, right? Other, other lessons or observations from this paragraph? What about the fact that they had more needs and less money? Is that an opportunity for faith to be strengthened? Yeah, we would hope that it's, you know, that it sort of correlate. You know, there's not as much, but there's also not as much that needs to go out. But he's saying we both had less for us and more that had more expenses. Okay. Yes. Yeah. No, I think that's a fair point. I think we think easily and we think we have a nice warm fireplace running and lots of warm clothes and, you know, Thanksgiving and Christmas feasts and that sort of thing. And that's probably not what he meant by easily. I think he just means God provided as faithfully as he did in the other times, even though there was a lot of uncertainty. What's that? Yeah, or that God helped them through the stuff that was bad. I think that's one of those things that we have to consider that sometimes our definition of things needs to be adjusted to match God's perspective on them. For example, where he says, the gold and silver are the Lord's, right? We tend to think the gold and silver are mine, right? Or the Americans, or the West's, right? We tend to think the, the, the resources belong to the people who, from a human perspective, have them in their bank accounts and investment portfolios and whatever else, right? Their coffers, so to speak. But God's the one who ultimately controls all those things. It's fascinating, the passages in the Old Testament, where it says the wicked store up wealth for the righteous. Which basically means God can have this person who's wicked spend his whole life building up this money, thinking that he's doing it for himself, and then God can say, I'm just going to move it over here through a variety of means. And that shouldn't surprise us because what we saw in Isaiah, here's Cyrus, the Persian king, who doesn't know why he's doing it, doesn't really believe in God, and God says, hey, let those people go, pay for them to get there, protect them till they get there, make sure they build the thing I want to build that has no benefit whatsoever to you, costs you money and time and reputation, but you need to do it anyway. And Cyrus says, okay. Why? Because the gold and silver are the Lord's. And we tend to think, no, yes, it is. So, 
And, and if, that's, if we're convinced of that, then who are we going to talk to about it? Not the rich guy up the hill, not this other person here. We're going to talk to God. And then that last phrase there, God used this as, spe as a special opportunity of showing the blessedness of trusting in Him. If we never experience difficulty and never have to rest in God's care, there are depths of communion with God that we do not experience. I don't think we need to go out of our way to make our lives intentionally difficult just so we have those opportunities, but I think God regularly brings them into our lives so that we can experience them and draw closer to Him. So let's keep building on that. Someone may say, you are continually in need. No sooner is the one demand met than another one comes. Doesn't it seem like a trying life? Aren't you tired of it? He acknowledges, I am more or less continually in need, but money is by no means the chief thing that I stand in need of from day to day. I think it's really important for him to say this because I think because he talks about money a lot, people might think he was only concerned about money or that's the biggest burden that's weighing on his heart. But he lists off a whole bunch of things um, around page 185. He talks about sickness among the children. And uh, for whatever reason, my kids have been sick a lot in the last few months, so that's uh, kind of a, that one stood out to me. But this one may not stand out to you, but if you're running an orphan house that's primarily about children and children in it are sick, that is connected with money, but it's also connected with just concern. I mean, his infant son was that he died and they couldn't do anything for him. I mean, death was a very real possibility in a lot of instances for things that today we'd say, oh, you'll be fine. Just drink more water or take this medicine or whatever else and you'll be fine. And so the burden of, and he doesn't say this specifically, but if it happened with his own son, I'm sure it happened with some of the orphans, the burden of children under your care dying and you not being able to prevent it, that's a heavy load to carry. Um... He said, my need of wisdom and guidance is great in order to know how certain children should be treated. He said, sometimes children are hired out as household help, help or apprentices. Finding a suitable place is important. However, it is more difficult than obtaining money. When one of the laborers must leave the work, such a need can only be supplied by waiting on God. One of the greatest difficulties is to find suitable godly persons. To find godly persons with these qualifications, suitable age, health, experience, love for children, true godliness, preparation to bear with the many trials and difficulties, and a strong desire to labor, not for the sake of money, but for God. How do these things compare to the difficulty of paying the bills? If it were you, would you find it harder to have lost several of the people that worked and did the work to help you in the household or the fact that you needed to pay the grocer or whatever for meat and bread and that kind of thing? Which would you find more difficult? Why? Not an answer to that question because I was thinking about something else. But yeah. Me, <laughs> you could only think about this one. Go ahead. Yeah. If... <coughs> the main reasons that God saves us are so that we pray yeah. and so that we serve Him. The more we have, the less time, the less we do of both of those things because we're, like you said recently, I think last Sunday, 
we're so consumed by trying to maintain and protect and keep and add to what we have. Whereas if we don't have, if we only have what we need for the day, then we're spending more time praying and serving. So, you know, these are all just collateral things of living the right way. Yeah. And I think we can live simply even if we have a fair bit by getting rid of the things that we really don't need and aren't using. Like, let's say that you are in the habit of showing hospitality and so you had a bunch of tables and chairs. I don't think the point of what we were just saying would be get rid of all the tables and chairs, right? But, I mean, if you had a collection of uh, fine china teacups and you had like 400 of them and you're not going to use them for anybody because you're worried about them getting broken and they're just decorative and they're taking up all this space and you have this whole room dedicated to them. You say that's an extreme example. We do stuff like that with things that we have. That's, I think, when we have to say, do I really need all of this? Because if it's never going to get used, it seems silly to have it just sitting around. But, yeah, so that's a really good point. Um, some of the uniqueness of what he's experiencing is because he's trying to live simply, sometimes by choice and sometimes by necessity. But if you had to weigh the challenge of, can I pay my mortgage, or is one of my kids going to have pneumonia and die in the setting of this, which one of those is harder? The thing with your kids, right? The thing about um, trying to find a job for them and why was that so important in their day? Why was it important for him to find a spot for orphans to work? Okay, because... Right, they're going to hit a point where they can't stay anymore and you can't provide for them, so they've got to have some means of providing for themselves on their own. So that's a heavy burden too, right? Because... Um, it's kind of like foster kids aging out of the system, right? There's this window in which someone can help them, and then after that, they're kind of on their own as a typical thing. So, um, yeah, again, I think we th fixate on the money thing, both because money tends to be really important to us as Americans and because it's what he talks about a lot, but we forget, and so it's good to be reminded, here's all these other things that were constant burdens. And it reminds me of what Paul said. These not only... Am I trying to proclaim the gospel, but I have the care and the burden of all the churches? Something like that. I forget which one of his letters he says it in. And um, I think this is true. Um, I think God's been encouraging me to think about a lot of this in the past year because... There were moments in my life when I felt like I was busy um, just because there was a lot happening. And then there were a number of points in the last year at which God brought me to a point where here's six things you need to do and you only have to one are you going to pick, right? So then that forced me to say I have to ask for help with the other ones or give some of them up, or whatever else. And I'm not pretending to say I've learned all the lessons I was supposed to with all of those things. But what I am saying is that experience has reminded me along the lines of what Mueller is saying, that having to ask God for help does something good for your soul. 
So, yeah, we shouldn't be fixated excessively on money because there are a lot of other concerns and burdens in life that are just as weighty and often more so. But certainly we need to ask God to provide for all those things. Here's his response. I'm not in the least way tired. Oh, I'm not in the least tired of this way of life because I expected difficulties from the very beginning. For the glory of God and the encouragement of his dear children, I desire to pass through them if only the saints might be benefited by the dealings of God with me. So why must we expect difficulty? Why was it important for that to be a starting point? What do you think, Robert? How did that change his attitude if he started out thinking that? Yeah. Not surprised by it? What are some other things about expecting difficulty, how that shapes your perspective on it? Devin? Okay. Okay, learning to depend on God every day because you know that your faith is going to be tested. What about the reality of um, our union with Christ? What I mean by that is, Paul says a whole bunch of things, and Jesus even said them too. The servant is not greater than his master. If blank happened to me, blank it will also happen to you. Paul develops it and says, if we shared in his death, we will also share in his glory that we must face persecution in the context of this life, that suffering is a normal expected part of the Christian experience. Now, we don't like that, and some people go too far with this. They just take it as uh, life is just going to be miserable, kind of like the Eeyore attitude, for lack of a better analogy, right? You tacked my tail back on crooked, but it's just going to fall off again, so oh well. Um, That's not the attitude we're supposed to have. But we're supposed to be realistic about the experiences of life, right? If our expectation is the lie that has been sold to so many people under the guise of Christianity, that if you follow God, everything's just going to line up and it's going to be a golden road of prosperity and you're going to have your every wish granted, I mean, that's not the gospel. That's the story of like Aladdin and a bunch of other fairy tales, right? That's not what God lays out for us. If Jesus had this experience, why would we think we're going to have this other experience? Now, there is the reality that living where we live, we're not going to experience it in quite the same way. But I think I've said to you this before, because we don't experience persecution, I think that God has used things that impact health and wealth in our lives so that we don't buy into those lies? This is not a biblical, like I can't point you to chapter and verse. This is just an observation. In a place like China or some of the Muslim nations, I feel like God primarily uses persecution to purify the church of the sorts of errors and false directions that would easily uh, destroy it. I think in the American church, he attacks what we worship, 
which is money and health. And he permits those things to strengthen our faith. Again, this is not, I can't point you to a chapter and verse, this is just an idea. So, if our expectation is, whether it's persecution or suffering physically or, or facing poverty at some point, loss of jobs, all those sorts of things, if our expectation is those things are going to come into our lives, we're not going to be shocked by them, we're not going to be angry at God when they take place, we're not going to complain in the same way that we would otherwise. The part about seeing God's hand in it, what was his attitude about why am I experiencing these things? What was his goal What was that he set out from the beginning and that he says again here? What was his goal? For the what? For the glory of God. And, or possibly even through, along with the encouragement of the saints, right? How many of you are willing, and I'm asking myself this question, to sign on for every moment of your life to be difficult so that other people benefit from it, not you? Now, that's not entirely true because he, he did grow in faith. He had communion with God. So, but from a human perspective, it only helps other people and doesn't help you. Well, I mean, there's a degree to which we see that in the New Testament. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, bear one another's burdens, all those sorts of ideas. Uh, but this, I think, takes it a step beyond just a general um, empathy with what people are going through. This is... I'm deliberately choosing a life that I know is going to be hard specifically so it will benefit other people. I don't know that everyone is called to this in this specific way, but it does strike me the parallels between this, the conversations that Jesus has in, I think it's Mark 8, where the one guy says, I'll follow Jesus. And Jesus says, the foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Or Jesus says in another place, follow me. And he says, well, first I have to bury my parents. Well, that could be 20 years down the road. First I have to um, try out in the parable of the guy invited the wedding feast, uh, inviting people to the wedding feast. Oh, I've got this new pair of oxen. I've got to go see if it was a good investment. Uh, I think there was one about... I don't know, getting married, and there was like two or three other ones, right? So here's all these illustrations where we're saying, I see blank as more important than following. Is it wrong to try out the pair of oxen? No. Is it wrong to take care of your parents? No, because Jesus actually condemns them in another place when they said, well, here's my loophole, so I don't have to. Is it wrong to get married and to dwell uh, in a godly way with your spouse? No. Like, none of these things are bad. They become sinful when we put them in an improper priority. And so to the degree that an example like this corrects our attitude that says, my life is only about me and for me and making me happy, I think it's really good for us to consider it for a bit. Bob? There's a small book called uh, Your Reactions Are Showing. And one of the points that he makes is nothing in this life can hurt you apart from your, re your sinful reaction. 
Okay. And so having that mindset, anticipating that things are going to be difficult, expecting it, even um, hoping for that difficulty prepares us to respond in a way that honors God and not react sinfully, which is our typical reaction. Yeah. And I guess what I think we're looking for here is a settled confidence that we expect that at some point things will come. We don't go out of our way to force them to happen, but we aren't shocked by and frustrated and angry when they do, which I think is your point you're saying. The last thing he says here in this chapter, do you make it your primary business and your first great concern to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Are the things of God, the honor of his name, the welfare of his church, the conversion of sinners, and the profit of your own soul your chief aim? Or does your business, your family, or your own temporal concerns primarily occupy your attention? Remember that this world will pass away, but the things of God will endure forever. I never knew a child of God who acted according to the above passage, for whom the Lord did not fulfill his promise. Matthew 6.33, all these things shall be added unto you, if we seek first his kingdom and righteousness. So how should we respond to these sobering questions? If we answer honestly... Would we say, yes, all of the time, God's kingdom and righteousness is my first priority? Anybody can say that? I don't think so. To the degree that we say no a lot, we need to re-examine our motives in the way that we're living life. To the degree that we say, yeah, sometimes that's not really the case, we need to pray for God's help and strength to grow in this area. Um, but the thing I wanted to focus on for just a minute, and I don't know if anybody has a testimony they want to share, how has God fulfilled his promise to add all these things to you? Can you think of a specific example in your life in which you said, I'm going to do what God wants more than what I want, or I'm going to do what might seem to be a risk in terms of my job or a relationship or whatever else, but God responded in a way that he added what was good for you in your life because of it. And if you don't have an answer, that's fine. But I think it's good for us to consider for a moment. Any examples come to mind that you've experienced or someone that you know? Somebody got hurt on the job, we'd all just come together and pray for them. And it was such a growing experience just being there for 12 years. 
Sure. Yeah, I mean, it, okay, other examples. I think that's one of those big tensions because there's moments when we want relief from some particular difficulty that God's put us in. And I don't think it's wrong to pray for that and ask for that and even to see God say yes to that. I think there's also moments when sometimes God says, I want you to remain in it, right? So that's what he said to Paul with the thing in 2 Corinthians 12. And I think sometimes we expect that God is only kind to us if he says yes to our cries of relief. But God can also be kind in his saying no. Jonathan? I think sometimes it's not a profound answer to this sort of thing. Like, if we are just faithful day by day, sometimes I think we think all of a sudden then 20 people are going to get saved or this huge obvious thing is going to take place, and sometimes it's not. So I think a lot of these things, we won't know for a long time the results of them, but the faithfully seeking after what God wants is important to do. So. All right, for that, we're going to wrap up there, uh, and let's pray, and then we'll head into the service. Dear God, we pray that you will continue to give us opportunities to grow our faith. There's perhaps a superstitious attitude that says we shouldn't pray something like that because then life will be difficult, but I think as we've seen in this chapter, even when it is, we are more keenly aware of your hand in our lives and your goodness to us. And so... It's not, Lord, that we have a 
death wish or desire to be miserable, but if you grow our faith through all the circumstances of life, then I pray that you would help our hearts to be willing to embrace all of them as you bring them into our lives and that we can uh, honor you and, and testify you of to others, which was Mueller's goal and I think a good goal. Maybe our path doesn't look exactly like his, but that still should be our desire that you would be glorified and others would be encouraged and that your work would go forward. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.